0: Hey, thanks for joining me for Ruth Chapter 2. My name is Erica, and this is Let's Be Real. If you have not joined us before or listened along, we are going through the book of Ruth in about four weeks' time, and we are jumping into Ruth Chapter 2 today. So if you haven't listened to Chapter 1 last week or the introduction the week before, I encourage you to go ahead and do that. Also, there's some things that I would love for you to be able to see this week as we talk about Chapter 2 So in my post on social media or in the podcast notes, there's a link to the slideshow presentation that I'm using when I'm teaching this class in person. So you have access to that to look at some of the slides to see some of the things that I'm going to try to explain as we quickly kind of just walk through, read through, and talk about Ruth Chapter 2. Okay, so Ruth, chapter two, what we're going to kind of describe this as is we see a ray of hope for for the royal line in chapter two. So we're kind of in act two. If we continue along the lines of this drama, picture, this kind of play, we're in act two. We see the attention shift from Naomi and Ruth to Ruth and Boaz. Then we have a new main character in this section in Boaz, and we're going to see three different scenes. We're going to start. In the home of Naomi and Ruth, we're going to go to the field of Boaz, and then we're going to be back at home. And one of the things that I had mentioned that I would love for you to be able to see is kind of the structure of the writing of Chapter 2. And I have it available for you on the slides, but maybe you can picture it with me. Picture it almost an outline of A, B, C, D, E, and F, and then working backwards from F back E, back D, back C, back B, back A, kind of like this boomerang effect almost in how this chapter is written. And it always amazes me that, man, Hebrew writing really is quite lovely and impressive. And uh, I don't think I always give it enough credit. But what we see in verses one through three, we see this introduction with, with the focus on Boaz. And then the second part, we see Boaz blessing his co-workers and he takes notice of Ruth. We see Ruth's desire and determination to glean in Boaz's field. And then we see Boaz's invitation to Ruth to drink. And then he makes a charge to his men. We see Ruth's response to all of that. We see her amazement at Boaz's grace in verse 10. And then kind of the climax and the fulcrum of chapter two is we see Boaz's praise and his blessing of Ruth. And now we kind of work backwards in the same format. We see Ruth's response again and amazement at Boaz's grace to her. One step back, we see Boaz's invitation to Ruth to eat and another charge to his young men. One Another step back, we see Ruth's action again, gleaning in Boaz's field. Boaz's blessing by Naomi for having noticed Ruth. So we have another blessing. And then we come back to a conclusion with the focus on Boaz. It is a mirror. forward, a climax in the middle, and then backward. And it's actually really cool to kind of see and just follow and to give credit to the author <laughs> where her credit is due. I'm like, oh, I would have never noticed that if somebody had not pointed it out to me. So just some cool little literature, literary style information for you and inspiration if you're into that kind of thing. So let's just jump into kind of reading. Let's start with a couple verses, and I'm just going to stop and share some information and commentate a little bit as we go chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And I'm actually going to stop right there at verse 1. I hope this doesn't take forever (laughs) to do this one verse at a time. Um, I just want to point out how the sentence is constructed. It starts with, now Naomi had a relative of her husband. It doesn't start out with Boaz's name. So we're learning some important information before we even get to who it is that we're talking about. And the word that's used here in Hebrew, translated as relative, is the word moda. It's a relative. It's what clan this person belongs to. What it's really saying is this is a close relative, kind of like a cousin. We'll see the word later. It's karob lanu. It's like this is our close relative. Here it does not yet say a very common word, which we'll see shortly, of kinsman redeemer. We're just talking about, there's this relative that Naomi is describing. He is a nobleman, Ishgabor Hayil, a man of mighty strength. This might have been a word used at times to describe a military man, a fighter, someone of social status, of social standing, of great wealth, someone that's just in a high social standing in the community, someone of noble and moral character. He's a well-to-do land owner. We see him in high standing when we see him at the gate. So we see this word, this noble man, a man of mighty strength, used to describe this person that we see in just a moment. His name was Boaz. So he was from the clan of Elimelech. So this is the subdivision of the family. We've kind of seen the discussion on what Ephrathite is, right? And like a farmer, a landowner, someone who is wealthy. We know that of Boaz in a little bit. And what's interesting about the name Boaz is it actually means in the strength, but it sort of stops. We don't know what it means. In the strength of what? We can presume in the strength of God, but, but we don't know. And we actually don't see the name Boaz used again throughout all of scripture. The only other time that we see it, it's not used in the name of a person. It's actually used to name one of the pillars in the front of Solomon's temple. So, We don't really have any more in-depth study on the name Boaz or any comparison or further definition, but we know it's in the strength of, and we presume it means God. So now we see two different parts coming up in the next couple of verses. We're going to see an initiative of Ruth, and then we're going to see a good fortune of Ruth take place. And we are going to read verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And I'm not even going to finish that verse because I want to talk about this a little bit first. We are in the time of the judges. We have talked about how ridiculous it is in the time of the judges, the apostasy is horrible. <laughs> like, it's, there's just so much horror going on in the world. For Ruth to go out and glean is not any sort of guaranteed, lovely, hard work in the sunshine farming experience that we can kind of glorify it and have this lovely picture of a lady out in the sun in the field, even if she's working hard. There's a lot of potential danger involved <laughs> in the time that she is leaving. She's not taking this decision lightly, They're in a place of desperation. What are we going to do? And Ruth is like, well, this is what I need to go do. Because what else can we? What else do we have? So we really see Ruth's character here when she's talking to Naomi and saying, hey, I am what like to go glean in the field. And she kind of puts a, a little hope Out there, among the ears of grain, after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. That word favor there is also grace. Like, I'm going to go glean someplace where I'm going to find grace and favor because I know that this is a tricky situation. We see her character in the the light of her actions. We see that she spoke, she went, she came, she gleaned. She is now the primary actor in chapter 2, and Naomi is the reactor because... That's all she can do. So we start in the house. We see Ruth. She kind of seizes this initiative. She is still called Ruth the Moabite. Pay attention to the author and how they keep saying Ruth the Moabite. They're trying to remind you. These people, the Moabites, they were despised. They weren't exactly friends or welcome. (laughs) However, her status here would not deter her from making something of her life. And she takes life into her own hand. So she's talking to Naomi. She's not really asking Naomi for permission, but that she's stating like, this is what I'm going to do. I think I should do this. She has a strong desire for whatever reason. Maybe God has put that in her heart. She's come up with an idea and she's simply asking for feedback. Naomi affirms her idea and her plan like, okay, and she supports it. She wasn't just going to get up and go and leave someplace. Ruth has this plan, this idea. She's going to go glean. She's not going to go harvest. There's two separate words that are used for gleaning and for harvesting. Harvesting is a general expression of kind of the whole harvest, like all the work. It's the cutting. It's the threshing. It's the storing. It's the beginning to end. It's a lot of work. Threshing, gleaning. On the other hand, this is a very specific action, a very specific word used for scavengers. You come and you pick up the ears that the harvesters accidentally dropped Um, The righteousness of the Torah its actually called for compassions on aliens, orphans, and widows. And one way that they would do that would be to intentionally leave ears in the corners of the fields or on the outside roads. They were told to grow and then leave them. You don't harvest those. Those aren't for you. Those are for the needy. This is sort of like the food stamp program of the ancient Near East and ancient Hebrew culture. And if harvesters accidentally dropped ears of corn in the field, they were not allowed to go back and pick them up. They had to leave them where they were. So this is where gleaning came in. The needy would come in and they would cut and harvest and glean from the areas that had been untouched that were there for them. Or they could go out into the fields behind the harvesters and look for anything and everything that they drop and quick pick it up. So Ruth here, she qualifies to glean as a widow and as an alien. But she can't really count on the fact that the owner and the harvester are going to treat her well. So this could be dangerous, which is why she asks and hopes and prays, essentially, that she's going to find grace in the sight of an owner. The word grace here, it's hen, H-E-N in Hebrew, We're actually going to see the significance of that word, and it's going to come back out in the next scene as we see her interacting with Boaz. But the irony here is that she is looking for grace in the land of the Israelites, of the Hebrew people. She's a Moabite, and if you're familiar with the story, and I think I maybe touched on it in the introduction, is that when the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt and they're traveling to the Promised Land, they stop in the nation of Moab, and they ask, Hey, Could you give us some bread? We're passing through. We're not going to do anything to you. We're not here like on a military campaign. We're not fighting. We're just moving through. But could you give us some bread to eat? And the nation of Moab said no. Now we have a Ruth the Moabite, which they keep reminding us, now in the land of Israel, hoping for grace. (laughs) To get away to have bread. The very thing that her people did not extend to the Israelites, she is now seeking from them in return. Hence why she's very hopeful that she can find somebody with some grace. So Naomi says, go. And Ruth is comforted by her response. And she's like, okay, well, here I go. Naomi actually gives her a blessing and by saying, go, my daughter. My daughter is this phrase. It's this term of endearment, of concern, of compassion, as well as also from age, right? Naomi is older. She's speaking to a younger person. She's like, go my daughter. It's essentially her blessing. So Ruth in verse three. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So we're going to stop a second. We're going to talk about the good fortune of Ruth that we see happen here in verse three. Verse three is saying that, so she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part in the field after the reapers. She happened to. Other versions kind of are saying it a little bit differently, but in a a sense they're saying, by sheer luck she came across the field allotment belonging to Boaz. And this is a very shocking and a very rare phrase in Hebrew. This is not something that they would have said because they don't really believe in luck, coincidence. Everything is out of divine providence. The Hebrew wording here actually would be translated would be her chance, chant upon the field allotment of Boaz. And this sort of comment actually only happens one other time in Scripture. We see it in 1 Samuel 6, 9 in regards to the Philistines how they saw the notion of chance. So they are sending the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelite people on the back of cows. I don't know if you recall the story at all, but the Ark of the Covenant was taken in battle against the Philistines. You know, it wasn't even supposed to be out, but whatever. They take it, and while they have the Ark, they suffer horrible plagues, and they're like, what in the world? this is horrible. Send that thing back. We don't want it. So they put it on the backs of some cows and they put those cows on the road pointing to the Israelites and they kind of send them out like, all right, go. <laughs> They're like, if it goes back and all of these plagues disappear, then it wasn't chance that all of these things happened. So here we see something very providential for Ruth in a number of ways. We see Boaz become over the top in his grace toward her. And that was what she was hoping for this hen. She's like, oh, I'm hoping to see grace. But she gets like lavish grace. And we see Boaz just happened, coincidence, no, to be from the same clan. What are the chances all of these things align? No chance. This is God's providence working. If Ruth ended up at the field of Elimelech's actual kinsman-redeemer, the first kinsman, this story would change right here and go very, very different. There would have been big trouble, and we know that because he was getting rid of aliens and widows, and we assume that due to the fact that he, as the first kinsman-redeemer in line, and we'll talk about this again later when we see it happen, rejects Ruth. He doesn't take her. He doesn't do what the Torah is calling upon him to do. We are not seeing righteousness and obedience and direction from the Torah out of this first kinsman redeemer. So the fact that she actually ends up at Boaz's, which is a a moda, just a close relative down the road, but from the clan of Elimelech, again, not chance. It is the providence of God that she ends up in the next near kinsman. Like it'd be really easy to be like, oh look, she ended up right at the door of her kinsman-redeemer. What luck. Well, no, not even. The next one, a different one, which is really cool. So we're going to keep reading. And behold, we're in verse 4. Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Not who is that. Whose young woman is that? Because we know in the culture, women are underneath the head of their father, their spouse. They're protected and kind of labeled under men, correct? So first, if I back up, we see Boaz come from Bethlehem. He's coming from town and he's heading out to his field. And one of the things I'd love to mention about the fields is that picture just a big expanse of land, of farmland, kind of broken up into squares, the squares aren't labeled and the squares belong to different people and there aren't gates and there aren't fences and they aren't labeled. A farmer would know his square, his allotment of land just by the location. Maybe how things are grown or what they're growing or how it looks. Ruth would not have known how to pick between that square of land over there or this one or this one. Like They all looked the same. She just kind of showed up and it keeps building on this whole idea of her chance chanced upon, this idea of providence and not luck. So we see Boaz come from town where he lives. He's the landowner. He doesn't work at his fields all the time. He's coming in to town. And we know that it's kind of an exclamation of like, hey, behold, hey, look, Boaz is here. Out of surprise because it says, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So the employees would have been like, The boss is here. Hey, look, Like this doesn't happen particularly every day. So let's talk about more providence. Here is Boaz. He comes and then we see him put a blessing or say, the Lord be with you. And they respond back. The Lord bless you. As a reminder, we are in the time of judges. So what we're seeing is we are seeing a boss, a remarkable scene actually, in how he speaks to his employees and how they respond With a blessing from Yahweh, he is a noble man. He is concerned about the welfare of his workers. He's making the work environment for them a blessed place, making it an amazing place to the point where they're excited to see their employer in the time that they live, and they give blessing to one another. They must be fond of each other. It must be an okay place to be. We're seeing what could be called hased out in the field. We've talked about hased, this kind of word that shows A lot of the attributes of God and covenant faithfulness and loyalty and love and faith and gentleness. And we see this relationship between Boaz and his field workers. And his workers must be happy with him because they bless him back. So we know that Ruth isn't alone in this barley scene. We have the reapers out in the field and she is behind them. And Boaz, he kind of notices a stranger in the field, uh, someone he doesn't recognize. And he doesn't ask, hey, who's that? He's like, who does she belong to? He didn't recognize her as Naomi's daughter-in-law. She was kind of a nobody to him. However, the worker, the person in charge, we'll call him the foreman, he responds with what we see at the end of chapter 1. And this is a Moabite that returned or shoved with Naomi. He, at this point, may not know her name. He just might know of who she is based on an introduction. I mean, we know she introduced herself at some point because he says she asked if she could glean. So verse, verse 6. And the servant, who is in charge of the reapers, answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. However, this triggers what Boaz has been hearing in town. He's like, oh, I've heard this story. I didn't know who it was, and now they're able to kind of put two and two together. Verse 7 is interesting. This is the continued response of the foreman, we'll call him. He's, it says, so she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Translators have struggled with how to write out that sentence because in Hebrew, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's very incoherent. It's almost as if he was stuttering, right? It was if he was maybe getting caught in something, saying something that maybe he shouldn't have, or maybe he was painting a negative picture because it's actually like she stood from mor- morning until now it's broken up and they have had to try to make it into a sentence because they the guess is that, you know, this young man has painted Ruth maybe with negative strokes by saying, yeah, and she just came she's this Moabite. He says it twice from Moab. She asked to glean in the fields. She could have just gotten stuff from the corners and the edges, but she wants to glean out in the fields with everybody else. And now he's kind of stammering, maybe that he's nervous and how he's making her appear to his boss, that maybe his boss will see his exaggeration and his fabrication because, well, yeah, but she has been working all, all day. So, um, It was no presumptuous thing. This is something she's entitled to. She asked. And here we actually get to see a contrast in Boaz's grace to Ruth compared to maybe the attitude of the foreman. Boaz appears as unbelievably accepting and generous and kind. And we see that play out in his conversation with Ruth in verses eight through 10. This is a very lengthy speech in Hebrew writing um, by Boaz. And something to keep in mind in Hebrew literature is the narrator isn't going to come out and tell you about a person much. They're going to let the words and the actions of the people do a lot of the speaking for their character. And we're going to see that between Boaz and Ruth in the next couple verses. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So here, I'm going to point out first by him calling her my daughter, the same term that Naomi uses. This is one of affection, of concern, of an older person looking down at a younger person. So it's very easy for us to see this story, this love story of this like young Ruth getting her hot young Boaz. He's probably an old dude. (laughs) Just by this expression alone, we can kind of see that. So help that change maybe how you visualize the story a little bit. But we see him looking tenderly at Ruth. He's not really commanding her and being pushy, but he is prohibiting her like, hey, don't go to any other field than this one. He has her well-being in mind. Try to imagine tenderness in his voice here because of the my daughter. He doesn't explain why she should stay. He is extending the custom that is required of him, right, of foreigners and widows. Like, no, you're welcome here. This is my, my job. I have this food available for you. Don't go anywhere else. But he also then commands Ruth to stay with his workers, and he uses the word stick with the other women. It actually also means to hang on to or cling to his female workers. Boaz charges his male harvesters not to harass her. This is a very emphatic affirmation. The word is naga, like do not touch, strike, harass, mistreat. You will not take advantage of her. Boaz is really showing a very mature spiritual understanding of what's going on in the time of judges. He was a righteous man, and he made a safe place for her to stay and to stick with. And then a shocking one is that Boaz invites her to drink freely of the waters that his workers collected. Now, usually you would see the men and the women coming to work. They would be carrying their own water and bringing it with them to work from a well or a cistern, maybe in town that they bring out. Maybe it's out on the edge of fields, but for whatever reason, we know that they have to gather water and bring it to work. In this culture, women would draw water for men. And a foreigner would draw water for the Israelite. Not the other way around. Boaz is really mixing things up a little bit. Like, hey, the local men have water here. And you, foreign woman, you can drink from it. I would kind of like to see the looks on the eyes of all of the male workers and the women. Like, what is he doing? Like, you know, the side eye. They can't argue. They can't fight. But it's like, This is so contrary to what we do here. Like, this is extraordinary. This is over-the-top grace. And Ruth is completely overwhelmed. Like, she understands, and she's overwhelmed by his kindness, and she falls to her knees. She's bowing with her face and her nose to the ground, and she worships him, which is really just showing such submission and respect. This is Ruth's nonverbal response. She's like, I am your servant, I submit to you, but verbally Ruth expresses amazement in verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We are now seeing Boaz blessing Ruth. His respect for her is obvious. He has said that he has heard all about her. He's like, oh, I heard all about you. I just didn't know who you were. So he's made the connection. He knows who she is. He's very aware of what she has done for Naomi and later, these actions are going to be described as hased. I mean, that is what he is seeing in her and understanding what she has done. She had preferred a foreign nature. This is sort of, there's some parallels to Abraham here in this story. Abraham committed himself to the unknown just like Ruth did. They leave their foreign country without any assurances of protection, both of them. Boaz was kind to Ruth because he was good. We see the providence of God in Boaz's response. Ruth was looking for somebody who would be gracious to her, and she found it. And now we see Boaz in verse 12, blessing, a blessing of Yahweh unto her. He prays that Yahweh would reward her. It's the verb form for that word reward there is salem. It's kind of what shalom comes from. It means to compensate, repay, replace with an equivalent. This idiom that he uses expresses the theology that God maintains order by repaying people according to their deeds. Proverbs 19.17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh, and he will reward him for his actions. So Boaz here, he's focusing on compensation and the God of Israel, that Yahweh will repay her. And we see in Genesis 15.1, that same reward for Abraham, whose reward will be great, which was fathering a nation as numerous in the stars of the sky. And then we actually see the women of Bethlehem pray that Naomi would be as blessed as Rachel and Leah. So we see Many parallels in the stories of Abraham and Ruth. Boaz's blessing of her by Yahweh was significant because Ruth had claimed Yahweh as her divine patron and her protector when she was leaving, when she was coming with Naomi. She was an Israelite by leaving her land and committing to them. And then lastly, he uses this phrase, in the protection of God's wings. This would have been a common image in the ancient Near East. Boaz projects that image onto Ruth That he is personally functioning as the Lord's wings here. You are being covered in the protection of the Lord's wings. There is so much to unpack in just that phrase and term in scripture that if you have time and want to be blown away, study that expression and that idiom and that picture of the protection of God's wings. It is, it's amazing. It'll blow you away. Maybe we'll have time to do a whole podcast on that someday we're jumping into verse 13. We get to see Ruth's second response to Boaz. We're kind of working our way back. That was the climax, right? This blessing that he gives to Ruth. And now we're working our way backward in mirrored order. We see Ruth responding for a second time in verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. We see Ruth say, I am finding favor in you. You have comforted me. He had spoken kindly and tenderly to her. Where she could have been pretty nervous about how this day was going to play out. She's amazed at his response. His grace is superseding her race and her class. She's saying she's not even equal to the maidservants, his young women. I'm below them. And she is comforted. And then we see a meal happen. Eating together had great symbolic significance in this time. Boaz's grace and his compassion is not exhausted. It keeps going. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Meals were not just to fill bellies. It was about friendship. It was about community. It was of great significance to sit down to eat with someone. And this wasn't exactly a banquet or a formal meal. This was a little bit of a spontaneous act out in the field. Boaz, he's eating with his harvesters, and now he includes Ruth, and this shows his character. He invites a foreigner to join him and his workers at a meal. And then... He encourages her to help herself. He invites her to dip bread into the sauce. Stale bread really needed needs to be softened. You, like, dip it into the sour sauce, soften it up a little bit so you can eat it at all. And then he serves her himself roasted grain. He gives her enough food to satisfy her in that moment and sends home leftovers, We see him have this verbal response, this verbal speech and his blessing, and now we see him in action. Boaz takes this ordinary event of this mealtime, and he turns it into an occasion that just bleeds compassion, generosity, and acceptance. This is one giant picture of hesed. Our key word for this chapter, you're going to get sick of hearing it by the time we're done, he is a good man sent by God to be his wings, God's wings for this woman, a despised Moabite. And we see it plain as day in his actions, his behavior, and his words. We're going to see Boaz's second conversation with his workers happen in verses 15 to 16. After the meal, in verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an effa of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So this is our last exchange that we see between Boaz and his workers. Ruth is back out in the field, back at work. And it triggers Boaz to kind of charge a final command to his harvesters and reaffirm the earlier instructions. Not only that, but permit her to glean among the sheaves. Now, Deuteronomy told them that if they dropped stalks or sheaves of grain, that they couldn't go back and get it, leave it for the poor. However, here, Boaz's instructions to her, they went far beyond that minimum requirement of Torah. He actually ordered them to kind of cheat (laughs) by purposefully dropping stalks that were already bundled. She wouldn't have to cut it. They were, like, prepped and ready to go. He's like, pull the good stuff out and drop them. Let her walk among the sheaves, like, the things that are done, and look. And she does. Boaz tells them not to insult her, the word hilklim. So this is, like, to be humiliated, shamed, disgraced. I mean, she is a foreigner after all, right? And now a foreigner who is getting, like, freebies. So no mocking her and being all, you know, passive-aggressive-like. Or to harass her, Gaar, which is to harass verbally, to insult, to rebuke, to bully. Like it's one step up. He tells him, do not do either of things, these things. And re- he reminds and extends protection over Ruth. There will be no action against that uninvited foreigner, Ruth. Nothing will be tolerated, is really what he's saying. And we see this picture that the narrator is painting again in the kind of person that Boaz is. And then she is back off to the fields. And she finishes up her first day in the fields gleaning. So she goes back home to Naomi, and now we get to see the significance of what just took place in Ruth's first encounter. We get to see her material, personal, economic, and social and kind of domestic status all affected in just this one day and one encounter with Boaz. The writer is showing us the divine blessing that has just taken place as the as the key to fulfillment of a divine plan. And that's what we're seeing being played out in this drama, right? So we see this, verse 17, it's sort of this transition into the next scene and discussion. Ruth is going home. Her wish had been fulfilled. She was in the field of a very gracious man. And we see her material significance be- for her and Naomi have been met. They have food. She gets to take home an efa of barley. Once it's beat out and processed, it's about six gallons worth of barley, which one efa would have weighed between 20 to 30 pounds to carry home. And she's got six of them. So we're talking between 120 and 180 pounds worth of barley. How she got it home? I have no idea. I couldn't do that. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be very challenging as I'm thinking about it. I mean, I live on a farm. Feed bags are 50 pounds a piece. So that would be maybe three of them. I could maybe move one bag, like walk it up a little ways, come back, get the other two, drag them to me, and kind of do this back and forth. Maybe there's a cart. Who knows how? But that's a lot of barley for one day. She also comes with leftovers to feed Naomi. She's like, hey, this is what I ate for lunch today, and here's leftovers. Your very immediate material need right here. You are hungry, eat right now. And your immediate future is covered right here. After one day of work, they now have what they probably would have needed for quite some time. Their hunger issues have been solved. That material significance is covered very quickly. And then there's a personal significance here. What has happened confirms the identity and the character and really the status of Ruth's host. Because we see in verse 19, Naomi, look, probably eyes wide open, a little bit of shocked, And she said, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. We see Naomi Go, where were you? This is a ridiculous amount of food. She blesses the person. She doesn't know who it is yet, but she puts a blessing on him. Like, whose field were you in? She didn't really care where. She wanted to know whose field were you in that noticed you? There's this spark, this hope that's ignited, and it's this exciting, upbeat discussion that Naomi is having. And before Ruth answers, she's just busting out and blessing. Ruth? has no idea who this guy is, but we do know that he paid attention to her. So Naomi asks, where did you glean today? And Ruth answers her back with, who? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, leaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth answers. She says, it was Boaz. But Boaz actually never introduces himself, not that we see. Doesn't introduce himself to Ruth. So she must have heard it among the workers, because we don't see that part take place. And when she says, oh, well, it was this, this guy, I guess his name is Boaz. Naomi she erupts into a second blessing for him, a blessing that follows very traditional Hebrew pattern. Blessed be he by Yahweh because he has not abandoned his loving kindness or his hesed toward the living and the dead. Boaz here is the receiver of this blessing. Naomi is recognizing that Boaz signifies the wings of the Lord by offering protection and provision. By being gracious to Ruth, he has honored the deceased of the family as a whole. His gracious loyalty to his family and clam, Elimelech, this is Hassed. To Naomi, Boaz is now embodying divine grace. They have received favor from God. Naomi is finally feeling and seeing and admitting that they are having grace and favor from God. Is she already scheming when we hear her go? Oh, wait, he's actually even a close relative. It's is she seeing the potential for fulfillment of the blessing that she made to Ruth before Ruth came with her when she asked her and encouraged her to go back and find rest in the house of her a new husband? I don't know. But she does go, oh, he's a near relative to us, A moda. He's a near relative. Wow you're in Boaz. He's a relative. And then it's like, oh, wait, he's one of our kinsmen redeemer. She ups it to the goel. This key notion in the book of Ruth, this redeeming, to redeem. There are multiple words in scripture. To redeem, the one here is goel. It's functioning as a technical legal term having to do with family law. So it's a kinship term. He's a near relative. What a goel is responsible for is they're responsible for economic well-being of the clan and its members a clan can have one or more kinsmen redeemers they would main be responsible for maintaining the integrity of the family of its hereditary property especially when family members were in distress and they could not get themselves out of a crisis a kinsman redeemer would step in Throughout Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, it's actually laid out there about five different circumstances that required the intervention of a kinsman redeemer in a clan or in a family. If there was a need to buy back hereditary property that had passed into hands of persons outside of the clan, that is when a kinsman redeemer would step in. They would also step in to purchase the freedom of individuals within the clan who had sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. So think indentured servant willingly sold themselves. And the Kinsman Redeemer is like, no, no, I am buying you out. You don't do that kind of thing. They would also track down and execute murderers of near relatives. <laughs> I was like, oh, wasn't expecting that. But we see that one twice in Numbers 35 in Deuteronomy 19.6 and 19.11 to 13. Kinsman Redeemers, they also received restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim or of a crime. And they would also ensure that justice was served in a lawsuit involving a relative. We actually see Job say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Justice will prevail. There is a lot of responsibility on a kinsman Redeemer. It was a very big picture of provision and protection over the whole clan. The intention really was to keep healthy Families, healthy relationships, and you are kind of put into a pretty big position to make sure that that happens, even after the death of family members. So here, at Naomi is reaching out and hoping that Boaz is going to go beyond the law to help this branch of the family, her and Ruth, with even more grace. Potentially, she's even thinking leveret marriage. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again in Deuteronomy 25. We see how the leveret marriage would work and how it's laid out that the brother or the uncle of the deceased male would take the wife of the deceased to have children, and that first son that was born would actually receive the name of the deceased to keep their family line going before they would continue to make their family line continue on. And just interesting fact that Boaz is actually listed as part of the royal line I'm in the genealogies, which means that Boaz retained his biological and legal status as the father of Obed after he and Ruth get married. Just, you know, an interesting tidbit because Leverett marriage would actually have Malon, her deceased husband, his name continue on. But for whatever reason, Boaz's name is there. So I'll just throw that out there. But Naomi has hope for her line. Is she already scheming (laughs) That's the personal significance. And we definitely see an economic significance here. Ruth was able to glean without fear through the end of the harvest. Naomi says to her, it is good, my daughter. Stay with them. Keep going. Ruth might be oblivious to the potential marital implications here. She's still kind of thinking about food and water. And she's worried about the long-term well-being. She's planning on going gleaning. Their welfare is... is completely secured. This is a huge deal because what she just brought back in one day will take care of them f- for a while. And this is at the beginning of the barley harvest. So she finishes out the whole barley harvest and it says does the whole wheat harvest, which comes second. I don't know if you're familiar with the harvest and the grain seasons, but barley you would actually hear in the Midwest, right? You would plant it in the late fall. So that roots would start, but then it comes up. It's an early spring crop, so you're harvesting them maybe by April, May in time to quick replant wheat in the same place, and then it's ready by fall. So you're able to get two grain seasons, and then once you harvest that wheat, you quick replant your barley. So she had a very full summer of work and of harvesting, and their economic situation is well cared for. And as far as domestic significance, we see Ruth remain with her mother-in-law. It seems kind of like a nice ending at the end of the day. It just kind of summarizes the results of the day. Ruth is going to cling to Boaz's female servant, and she remains there. She was comfortable with his graciousness. They are set, and they are good. And we get to see some very practical and theological significance out of chapter 2. We really get to expand on and see Scripture's understanding of divine providence here. I mean, it is... Providence upon providence upon providence. We see the hidden hand of God at work. We see him at work within people's decisions and things that seem to be chance. Ruth just picking a field of a gracious man that is also a moda or a close relative. There's no such thing as chance. Proverbs 16.33 says, "The, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from Yahweh. And the narrator, even mentioning at the beginning chance upon chance, makes all of the hearers of this literature evaluate everything that is now going on in this story. It's kind of this red flag because they're like, no, it's not chance. Oh, God's at work. What's going on? And then your eyes and your ears are open for it, and you see providence after providence after providence. We get to see the demonstration of what covenant righteousness and said look like. Deuteronomy 16, 20, Moses is declaring kind of this ethical ideal of the covenant righteousness, Only righteousness you shall pursue. And Boaz's reaction to Ruth in the field, it totally demonstrates his characteristic in a very dramatic way and in the form of social justice. Nothing in the Torah obligated him to this Moabite woman, but his display of grace was extraordinary. He could have sent her away, and he could have used scripture to justify it, but instead he addresses her tenderly by saying, my daughter, and he grants her a host of privileges, the actions of a fundamentally good man here, where Boaz is guided by the Torah, but he is driven by the Spirit. And what's really cool is that Galatians 5, and 23, the fruits of the Spirit, by the end of this book, we see Boaz exhibiting all of the fruits of the Spirit. And I'll be honest, sometimes I think when I hear those verses, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, I'm like, is that even possible? And then let's meet Boaz. <laughs> You're like, oh, gosh, dang it, it is. <laughs> uh, another thing we get to see is that we as people are the wings of God through whom he cares for his marginalized. True righteousness is demonstrated by action that honors God and serves the poor. James one twenty seven says, This is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And last but not least, we kind of get to see the theology of work here. To be human is to work. Boaz praises Ruth because of her qualities, her loyalty, her hesed, her refusal to run after men. We see that in the next chapter. He is praising her for her work. In the introduction, we talked about how the fact that in some complete Jewish Bibles, that the rabbis actually put the book of Ruth After the book of Proverbs, because they see Ruth as the embodiment of the noble woman. Like, hey, she is exhibit A of the Proverbs 31 woman. And we get to see some lessons from this biblical theology kind of of work. We see food as God's gracious gift in response to human effort. We see work as an expression of commitment to the well-being of the family and the workplace as an environment to demonstrate fear for God and respect for his workers. So as an employee, right, we work as an expression of commitment. We have a job and we have a dedication to our family to provide for them. And then also as an employer, you can use your workplace as an environment to demonstrate the fear and the love of God and how you treat your workers. This is actually kind of where we see in this book of Ruth in chapter 2, Boaz's discussions with his men. We're kind of seeing like the earliest recorded anti-sexual harassment policy in all of history, right? Male workers, he's telling them, you will not bother the female workers. The foreign female has equal access to the water cooler and to the table. Boaz's regular employees, they are not allowed to scold, insult Ruth, and the regular employees are actually to make Ruth's work environment as secure as possible and get out of her way to help her achieve her goals, which brought her there in the first place. Which is pretty cool when you really think about it that way. For work, we see that it's results as a witness to the integrity of human beings and the grace of God. God can provide grace to us through our work. And I know we don't always want to hear it because we don't always like work. But work is a gift, and the products of work are gifts from God as well.